Welcome along. It's the Red Star Radio Weekend Edition. It's like the Financial Times Weekend Edition, only much better value and probably far more content and less annoying reviews about how to spend your cash. So, uh, without further ado, we have an urgent update from um, Occupied Ontario, uh, being run as it is by an idiotic cabal of losers headed by the bloviating, bloated jellyfish, Mr. Douglas Ford. Uh, Layla, currently under occupation in Ontario. Uh, what is your what is your situation? Uh, well, yes. So my freedom update, freedom dispatch update is that I still have not gotten a fine for refusing the quarantine hotel. However, yesterday I did get a call from the petty bureaucrats, the petty authoritarian bureaucrats of Public Health Agency Canada run by Dr. Theresa Tam, who I repeat, should get fucked fuck her. She's a psycho. Anyways, uh, they called me and they um, asked me if I was quarantining. So initially I did ask, answer a few of their questions, but then they asked, started asking me like, um, like how I'm doing my groceries and stuff. And at that point I was like, I'm not answering your questions. Uh, You're not the police. Uh, You don't have the right to question me. Uh, I am not under arrest for anything. Uh, I'm not a criminal. I'm a Canadian citizen. And I'm not going to answer your questions. And so then she was like, well, I have to. This is like a public health agency Canada. Like, you know, we just need to do this part of the process. So then I was like, okay, what's your name? And then she gave me her first name. And I was like, okay, what's your last name? And she's like, well, I can't give you that. And at that point, I was like, if you can't even give me your name, why am I going to give you all this personal information and answer your intrusive questions? So anyway, she hung up. And um, then this pussy ass bitch like told on me called the police and uh the police then called me and then said that they would uh they just asked me if i was quarantining and then they said they would come pay me a visit and to check if i was quarantining at the place where i said i was quarantining um i was half expecting them not to come but the next day they did come <laughs> in the morning so they just knocked on the door. I went and I answered. They asked me if I was uh, who I who they were looking for. So they asked to see Layla, and I was like, "This is she." And then they asked to see some ID. I showed them a picture of my passport, and then they asked me if I was quarantining. And then I looked at the police. It was a policewoman with uh, her partner, a policeman. And then I told them, as you can see, standing right here. And then she was like, okay, are you okay? Do you need anything? And then I was just like, am I free to go? And she was like, yep, of course. So then I shut the door and that was the end of it. Um, so, so far, a lot of intimidation tacti- tactics, but no fine, um, no ticket for anything. Um, I really have to say I quite resent being treated like a criminal. Um, as far as I understand, in Canada, we have the right to re- representation before being put under arrest, or shortly thereafter, at least. Um, I have the right to know what crime I've been charged with to um, justify uh, being under house arrest. I haven't been charged with any crime, actually. Um, And also, I believe I have a foundational right to liberty to begin with. So uh, there needs to be an actual reason for why my freedom of movement is being restricted and why I am being harassed by bureaucrats and police people None has been forthcoming. Uh, apparently, I've uh, tested negative for the disease that they claim they're trying to control multiple times. I'm completely asympt- asymptomatic. And yet I have police people coming to my door. 
Um, so it's a little surprising, gotta say, very disappointed in Canada, but um, maybe I shouldn't be. Well, <laughs> the campaign waged by the uh, the bloviating, bloated, blowhard uh, Prime Minister Ford against an enterprising small businesswoman such as yourself is truly disgusting. His claims <laughs> of being pro-business are ludicrous. Um, but seriously, like... This is this is what the regime comes down to, as we were saying when we were discussing your visit here. Yeah. Um, like this, this is all it is. It's like they rely on the fact that most for most people, a call from the government is still an intimidatory thing. It's still a scary thing for many people. Like calls from government officers can mean like severe financial hardship or possible imprisonment, and people carry that fear around with them. And the police know that. They know that they're the intimidatory effects that they have when they turn up fully uniformed to say, like, well, uh, we're just uh, we're just here for your safety. And to which everybody should really reply, well, that's bullshit. I mean, one of the worst things about this entire farce has been, like, the way they constantly hide behind the idea that, oh, we're just concerned for you. It's like, well, in that case... Are you going to invest in the healthcare system? Well, no. Are you going to give people more days off work? Well, no. Well, then you're not concerned for shit. You're just concerned for keeping things the way they are. Well, So it's such a pile of utter crap. It is. And I mean, I don't even expect that from bourgeois governments, like investment into public goods and services. <laughs> That's the last thing I expect from them. I, I do kind of expect, though, that they uphold basic liberal rights like the right to counsel the right to appear in court within a reasonable time frame and the right to reasonable bail um i i don't know why they've put thousands of canadians under house arrest and suspended basically all of our charter rights and they've not offered any justification for it they've just said we think well they've done that they've done that thing to avoid doing the productive thing. right okay well there you go that's the answer yeah i i really resent it i i, I don't think anyone should have to live in fear and be afraid if they're just like you don't have to have in fear. Period. Like, like you have the right. For instance, the presumption of innocence has been suspended. Anyways, it's just very, it's very annoying. It's very, very grating. I, I definitely. I mean, I rationally understand. Like, very unlikely anything will actually happen, but it is intimidating. And like when the police came, I, I did feel very like not very afraid, but I did feel afraid, and I was feeling nervous. And why should I be made to feel that way? I'm, I literally have never done a crime in my life. <laughs> I've never been charged with a crime in my life. I've been an upstanding citizen. And this is to be treated this way after all, all of these years of contributing to Canada very positively and, on, well, you know, definitely from the capitalist point of view. Um, you know, it's very, uh, I mean, not disappointing, but I mean, you know what? It's just made me more communist. Just made me... Super communist. <laughs> this is this is the good result. This is this is the dialectic in action. I've completely lost faith in governments and scientists and doctors and journalists and pretty much the entire superstructure. All of my faith and all of my confidence is in the proletariat only at this point. Um, they are the only ones who can actually deliver true democracy and true justice. What we have now is a sham democracy, and it is a system of injustice, not the justice system injustice there there, there uh, and justice there is none as it says in the bible <laughs> but also um you know I, this this has been a very revelatory year i think for many people but i think for because uh, we've worked on this on the show so much on the covid thing and like worked to work it works to examine exactly what is going on like the the only 
conclusion that actually makes sense is the 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 properly done marxist analysis of this which is that the the series of irrational crazy and authoritarian things that the system is doing is is can be only be analyzed properly as a sign of like acute decline in the system acute declining the capitalist economy and yeah. more specifically a decay in the uh the economies of the old established capitalist powers like in britain canada united states france germany all behaving in like completely crazed and bizarre ways because there's a huge economic rot there that's not been resolved from 13 years ago because like the political superstructure which is built on that has gone completely rotten because it's derived from a very unstable um unproductive economic base which only really sustains itself by moving money around and periodically engaging in on a fairly regular basis actually in like imperialist adventures in various different countries and this creates like a completely rotten system which is made worse because of the fact that they the bourgeoisie attained a temporary victory over the working class in the 80s and 90s or maybe later and in more slow motion in like a place like germany but this is this is what a rotten bourgeois state with no working class pressure on it in the period of like um state monopoly capitalism at its most rotten this is what it all looks like and this is this is in my view the the failure of the so-called marxists in the world to understand it in this way says that they've all gone rotten too and because the, the the basis of their failure is the fact that they have forgotten one of the core lessons that you and i have talked about stemming from like marx and engels themselves which is that the the critique of science and the critique of science as it stands as a function within capitalist production but also as a bureaucratic system within the superstructure as well and its place in uh, the ideological regime of modern capitalism the failure to understand that really has been devastating for modern marxism because i mean i read a couple of pieces this week on so-called freedom day here in britain which by the way Frida, four days in now, and uh, so far, it's all we've got is more hysteria. But the working class is getting on with life. Um, but the, the these fucking so-called Marxists, like just taking the pronunciations of like some idiot like Neil Ferguson and others, uh, completely uncritically, completely not analysing the science that comes from the bourgeoisie in a critical way at all, just accepting it. Because they think they've they've mechanically reduced their analysis to, oh, lockdown means less capital movements, therefore that must hurt capital, therefore lockdown good. Uh, and that's that's not just with the COVID. They've done the same thing on climate change, about which more in future episodes. Yeah, Alex. Honestly, I think it's much more than that. It's not just a misunderstanding of science. It's I think the project for human freedom has been completely abandoned by the vast majority of people, Marxists, liberals, and others. No one actually believes that human freedom is something worth fighting for anymore. Like, they think, even if this was a serious disease, I I don't know. Like, I don't think it justifies a suspension of all rights and of, like, massive propaganda and fear-mongering. Like, if something is that serious, show people that. Show people actual evidence of that being the case. 
and then they will follow what you're going to do. Like, there's no need to coerce and, like, suspend all rights in order to, to get them to do it. I just think it's not it's not the right way. And I, I think Marxists especially, like, this weird take where it's like, well, lockdowns are are okay because this disease is apparently really bad. Um, it's, are they? <laughs> like, like, have, you know, even from a, like a human, a human freedom perspective, like, th- does that make sense? Like, I don't know. I don't know what they, they, they've just completely given up what I think is really the premise of Marxism. Like why we are Marxist is to fight for human freedom and to understand how it is that we're not free and how to, lead to freedom and so i, I don't know like what's their they have no point as marxists like they're pointless the fatal flaw lies within um a complete misunderstanding of the situation that happened in a lead up to in the, the aftermath of the fall of the ussr and also like when you take into account like a series of dramatic defeats for the the working class in like quite a lot of the advanced capitalist nations um, the adoption of capitalism by China, for instance, all of that leads to a very reactionary and negative picture in a lot of places. And I don't think that the um, I don't think that most of the Marxist groups that are around in the advanced capitalist nations have really recovered from that. I don't think they have. I mean, they the, if you look at like every single like thing that they a lot of them have been involved in in Britain, like. They haven't advanced consistently like a, a class based analysis. Like even when they've like had big moments, like for instance, um, the, the anti-war movement in Britain was n- even though it was largely organized by like a supposedly Trotskyist group, the SWP was purely operating on the basis of a very, very outmoded bourgeois pacifism, which led, which led that movement into a complete dead end. They're not analyzing the, the the world in the correct way all they're doing doesn't matter whether it whether it was anti-war movement or this covid thing or the climate change thing or whatever it is every time they are in a situation where there is the opportunity to build something what they do is they cling to a particular wing of the bourgeoisie and that's in if i'm being honest that's all the anti-war movement was in this country it was them clinging to and promoting a particular wing of the bourgeoisie, the the wing of it that was slightly more skeptical about Blair and going to war, or the the Brexit thing again, clung to the liberal end of the bourgeoisie, and because because the working class has got got suffered a large political setback in the nineteen eighties and nineties, and hasn't recovered, therefore Marxism itself has become completely unmoored from the working class entirely and just floats around in the petty bourgeoisie and like every other form of petty bourgeois politics now it's just become mostly absorbed into in in my case like the british bourgeoisie has basically just absorbed most of the marxist groups ideologically speaking all they do is put a Marxist sheen on what one wing of the bourgeoisie or another is thinking, because there is no um, there is no activity within the working class. The Marxists are completely cut off from the working class. They just echo bourgeois talking points now. They, they all they do is reflect back bourgeois ideology. Alex, man is born free, and everywhere he is under the tyranny of hysterical, retarded, petty bourgeois morons. 
Which is what Jean-Jacques Rousseau would have wrote if he was still around. He'd have been prolific on Twitter. I would have followed him and retweeted everything he said. Um, yeah, so anyways, uh, well, speaking of human freedom, um, we're going to speak about, well, a, a tragic yet very heroic uh, battle for human freedom. Um, much more serious than my current situation. So good to give me some perspective. Um, so that is, of course, South Africa. <laughs> Yeah, which is an ongoing situation, an ongoing struggle, regardless of the propaganda of the 90s and 2000s. As the recent riots have shown, this is an unfolding story still. Now, we wanted to look at this because, of course, um, most of the analysis on it through the bourgeois press will be a complete and utter useless uh, so-called analysis. I mean, from the, uh, the from the, like the bourgeois right wingers, it's like it's proof that like um, well they don't say this, but uh, a lot of them are saying well it's proof that this uh, whole uh, democracy thing didn't work out, isn't it? Which is basically the line that a lot of the right wingers are taking. Um, you know, they they can't come out and say that apartheid they think apartheid was better, but they're thinking it. Um, it, it wasn't. A, a, <laughs> it, it really wasn't, as we're about to show. <laughs> Um, but we wanted to look at like the why why we we're in the point where these riots have broken out. Like, what is the story, and to sort of understand where it comes from, to we'll start off by giving a bit of the historical context. So, the origins of um, the apartheid system, first of all. So, South Africa, before it was the the apartheid state was like a, a a colony that was kind of unevenly and uneasily balanced between like uh, Dutch colonial settlers that went there in the 17th century who became known as the Boers, um, who speak a sort of version of uh, Dutch that became Afrikaans, and a series of like British colonies that existed there in the 19th century that ultimately after like uh, the First and Second Boer War in the towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century these were all consolidated into the dominion of south africa from 1909 uh so the sort of semi-independent boer republic still existed uh, under nominal british colonial control much like in a lot of the other dominions like canada australia new zealand uh, south africa became largely independent after world war ii and the apartheid system begins after the uh, the Boer-dominated National Party wins the 1948 election and institutes this sort of strict racial separation and categorization system, which was, at the time, it was some, not something that the British-aligned uh, political parties there were looking to do. They preferred a rather more subtle form of rule. But the, the Boer <laughs> settlers really went for it in a major way but it also it must be emphasized that like this system of racial categorization was actually used quite a lot in the early 20th century it wasn't just a uniquely south african thing like a number of um the nominally independent states in south america and uh the caribbean for instance that had like white minority bourgeoisies also used this as a way of like strictly um stratifying the labor force and increasing divisions between the different uh, skin color groups and enabling easier hyper exploitation of those who were judged to be at the bottom of the ladder, which is what happens in South Africa. South Africa is a place with enormous natural resources um, in terms of like mining, uh, explo exploitation of uh, natural resources, so diamonds, platinum, coal. Uh, it's got a lot of very uh, uh, profitable farmland as well. 
as we'll see in the disputes over land there. And so this is a very this is a very rich country potentially. And the system that the apartheid government builds is based on the incredibly vicious exploitation of the overwhelmingly black working class. Um, the, and resistance begins almost immediately, but sort of really uh, starts going, starts boiling up from the the 1960s onwards, when uh, the apartheid system then slowly starts to run into trouble. So, do you want to talk a little bit about the the system itself and how it how it runs into the ground? Well, I mean, it was like a brutal system of uh, like actual white supremacy, racist uh, law, like uh, the, the the reaction to political activists of all kind were absolutely brutal. I, I had the actually had the uh, the privilege of going to to Johannesburg a few years ago, and I visited the apartheid museum there on my last day. And it had a huge impact on me. I was in tears at the end of it because, you know, you just learn about the hangings and arbitrary detention. You know, uh, one one story that really struck out to me was uh, of a young um, anti-apartheid activist. So very famous, actually, Steve Biko. Um, he was, yeah, he was only 30 years old, a very talented agitator, organizer, and he was beaten to death in prison. Um you know, it's just terrible. Like these kinds of things were routine in apartheid uh, South Africa, and the people there, like especially the the racial, like the you know racial categorization of black or native or Africans, as they would switch different names to call them, was terrible. They they lacked like basic basic necessities, um, and so there was almost immediate resistance. Like the ANC really got going in like the 1950s, so very shortly after the start of apartheid. Um, and so it, it built up a really big force, like it, um, very like admired, like very effectively organized uh, the working class, like across racial lines as well. Uh, despite the huge efforts from the bourgeoisie in South Africa to divide them amongst these various ethnic uh, racial groups, uh, the ANC at the time was quite good in organizing uh, beyond those lines, and they very explicitly um, started out with their Freedom Charter, of course, which was like an anti-racial perspective, right? So they they sought to. Um, deliver rights um, without reference to race. So I, I thought actually that was quite um, progressive and very admirable um, start to them. Uh, the fact that they did explicitly take an anti-racial line that is a very proletarian perspective and it worked great um, to unite the people. And so it uh, basically like the mounting tensions um, made it like it, they were able to garner a lot of global support and uh, while apartheid was going, the country accrued like an enormous amount of debt as various boycotts and other things started affecting them. And also the, the country was just facing an overaccumulation crisis like over the course of many, many years. And so uh, financially speaking, the country wasn't doing great. But the the, the unrest uh, started making – made uh, – Finance capital, international finance capital, start to feel nervous, and finally, in September 1985, um, the big banks and big business stopped lending to the apartheid regime because they were like, "Okay, this is too unstable. Like, we're not going to take the risk anymore to lend out to you." Citibank was one of the first major banks that just announced that they were not going to lend anymore to South Africa, and this caused a chain reaction. And so, this was one of the things that really brought down the regime. So. 
And this is because of the heroic organizing of um, the working class and the agitation that they were causing in the country, which finally, you know, even even made finance capital nervous. I mean, a lot of different things were going on, like, but I, that, that's like a major component of it. Um, and also just being able to, yeah, really garner a lot of international support and solidarity um, over a very just cause of ending apartheid, like, which... You know, you read some of the stories from that time and, you know, for instance, the Soweto massacre where, uh, you know, people were protesting and there were school, school children and students and they were just like mowed down with uh, machine guns. And you're reading this and you're just like, what year is this? And it's like 1976. <laughs> extremely backwards. Um uh, you know, it's kind of incredible that that apartheid, yeah, was basically in place like into the nineties. Like, you know, so, uh, it fell, it, uh, it falling was like extremely progressive, like an, you know, an unabated, um, step forward for all South Africans. Uh, but, uh, definitely, uh, the type of revolution that occurred there fell way, way short of what the aspirations of the people were. Yeah, and to throw in another couple of details, it's also worth emphasizing the progressive role that the Cubans played in towards the end of apartheid when they sent uh, forces to support the uh, SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization, which were the group fighting for the independence of Nab Namibia. Which yeah. was Namibia had been German, German <laughs> colony up to 1918, then had been assigned to the British who'd put it under the control of the Dominion of South Africa. And there was a long, very bitter war there for independence, which the Cubans coming in uh, defeated the, uh, the South African, uh, the white-led South African army. Uh, which damaged the prestige of the regime incredibly. And also, like the final other regimes that uh, supported um, whites-only rule, so like the Ian Smith regime in Rhodesia had also fallen um, in the late 70s to a deal with um, the force, revolutionary forces at the time, led by uh, Mugabe. Um, so like this was like the last of the sort of white uh, settler colonial regimes that were still ruling. And by the end of the 80s, of course, finance capital didn't need them anymore. Uh, finance capital had backed them up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s because of the the fear that the if because the ANC was a uh, in a partnership between themselves, the South African Communist Party and the South African Confederation of Trade Unions, KASATU. And there was a real fear in the uh, the advanced capitalist nations that if the, um, this, the apartheid regime was overthrown, then there would be a revolution that would sweep through all of uh, southern Af the southern African states, uh, which, bear in mind, even after nominal independence, uh, the British and the French in particular held on to a lot of interests, economic interests there, and still do to this day. So they were really keen on backing up the apartheid government right up until the point where it got too unstable and it would have been better for them to do a deal. And also when you get uh, clown-faced Gorbachev taking over and basically uh, running the Soviet Union completely into the ground. So like what support it did give to anti-colonial struggles got cut off. So by the time we reach the period where de Klerk is negotiating on behalf of the South African National Party-led government with the ANC leadership, the, uh, the USSR is gone. We're in a period of profound counter-revolution in Europe 
And it should be emphasized as well that from the period where negotiations started, characters who pop up in this story, like Cyril Ramaphosa, like Jacob Zuma, like Tabo and Becky, uh, three of whom go on, to, of course, to be president, like Mandela himself. What they were negotiating towards was the ditching of the Freedom Charter that you've described and the move towards like the ultimate agreement, which would be an agreement to rightfully and progressively end the revolting apartheid system, give um, civil legal, full civil legal equ uh, rights of, uh, to the entire population, removing the color bars that have been legally imposed by the 1948 system. And putting in place a, a regime of bourgeois democracy, which is a step forward. But ultimately, because South Africa is still was incorporated into and still is incorporated into the international system of finance capital, um, finance capital from, you know, based out of London and New York in particular, the Americans and the British lent on the and didn't have to lean that hard on all the parties concerned to basically do a deal which kept all of that economic structure intact. But what it did do was it gave the um, the ANC leaders the chance to join the bourgeoisie, which if you look at the current president, Ramaphosa, his story is exactly personifies this. A guy who went from being the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers in South Africa, leading a militant miners strike that was ultimately violently defeated by the apartheid regime, to being a billionaire with shares in the mining industry, who later went on to be the guy who was uh, the lead figure in organizing the massacre of striking miners in the place called Maracana in 2012. His story is basically the uh, an ideal personification of like the journey the ANC went on in that period after '94. But do you, do you want to talk a little bit about like the the hopes that were unleashed by like the '94 period? Because the ANC did bring with it a lot of popular support, didn't it? Yeah, I, I think the NC has a, a very admirable history. Like to to come back to the point about the Freedom Charter, like that's something they put together by going out to the people, asking them what they wanted, and like putting it together, having it, um, you know, voted on and worked on by like a, a collective group of people, and um, and and they had raised the hopes of the South African proletariat, who did struggle val valiantly for decades to bring down apartheid, and so their hopes were very high and. Actually, the constitution, the constitution of South Africa, um, which is based in large part on the Freedom Charter, minus all the stuff about nationalization of resources, etc., is one of the most um, progressive constitutions in the world. Like, for instance, it has the right to housing in it, which I think is unique amongst all bourgeois constitutions in this world. And so I was, you know, I was watching um, some clips uh, from BBC uh, on the fall of apartheid. And this woman with her child was speaking to the journalist and the journalist was like, well, how much time are you going to give the ANC to fulfill their promises? Like one year, two years? And she just looked at the journalist and she's like, two months. We we deserve education. We deserve housing. We need adequate food. We need water. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I felt uh, it, it's, it, it's so justified. Like the struggle was brutal and bloody, like literally brutal and bloody. And uh, I, I really feel like the ANC, in my opinion, really let the people. I mean, they didn't. They didn't just let the people down. Um, 
the type of uh, actions they took when they got into power, it can, I, I, I don't think can be understood as anything less than an attack on the working class in, in favor of capital. They've betray- they betrayed the people. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I don't think it's, you know, putting out the blame on Mandela, for instance, makes sense. Um, no figure stands alone. Uh, there was an enormous amount of pressure on him. The USSR had fallen. Um, you know, like Castro said when he was interviewed on the fall of the USSR, we, we live in a time of unprecedented reaction. And so faced with those odds, you really do need, you know, a person of historical like a Lenin type figure to be able to do anything at all. But nonetheless, I do think he could have done a bit more. So one of the most egregious things that he did was to accept to pay back Arbitide era debt. So what is that? That's money that the Arbitide government took in order to maintain the Arbitide system. So I think Mandela could have quite easily, given the amount of international support um, that the anti-Arbitide movement had gained, given the the real brutality of the arbitrage system and the complete illegitimacy, therefore, of that debt could have just said, we're not going to pay back this debt, you know, and we're going to put that money instead into into state invest into state investment. But he not only agreed to pay back the debt and, um, you know, the, the debt in full, uh, and it, it redirected money. It was a form of capital flight um, out of the country, which uh, redirected money away from what people really needed. And they didn't even have the basic necessities. And many people in South Africa still do not. So, you know, and and following that, they privatized a whole slew of of state-owned services, like in telecommunications, um, energy production, etc., which drove up the cost of living. Um, And um, it's actually pushed up the cost of living to such a high amount that there's been an increase in absolute poverty, okay? And what the NC did furthermore was that they demobilized the unions on purpose um, in order to, like, disorganize the working class so that as they were doing these privatizations, um, the working class was was less and less able to fight back against it. They, you know, they cut corporate corporate taxes drastically. I don't know. It, it It's just so egregious. And, like, now, um, just to read a, statist- a statistic, the average Black African household income fell by 19% from 1995 to 2000, right? Like, so the the economic situation of Black Africans have has actually gotten worse. And I think in a, in a in a testament to how tragic the failure of the ANC was, a survey um, taken in late 2002, conducted by the Liberal Institute for Democracy in South Africa, showed that more than 60% of all South Africans said that the country was better run under apartheid. And only one in 10 people believe that their elected representatives were interested in their needs. And if you just isolate, you know, so-called black people, um, you know, only only 38% deemed that their government was more trustworthy than before. And only 24% of black Africans agreed that the current government is less corrupt than the apartheid regime. I think that's tragic. That's tragic that the ANC has created a situation where people think that Arbitide was better. <laughs> it's just awful. So, I mean, I don't know, huge failure. Obviously, the fall of Arbitide was a unabated, like unabashedly, uh, you know, forward step. The extension of liberal rights formally was, you know, in front and universal suffrage, like people based on color in South Africa 
in like the 60s and stuff couldn't vote. Like if you were Indian or something, you couldn't vote, for instance, for a long time, let alone whether you're black. Like that was not even on the question. That wasn't even a question. So the, obviously it's, it, it was a progressive step forward, but it fell way, way short of what the people fought for and what they deserved, honestly. Yeah. And the question over like what happened in 1994 needs to be, it can't be emphasized enough. Like the, the South African working class made heroic and enormous sacrifices to bring the apartheid regime down and what happened is that essentially and it wasn't they this wasn't the only country this happened in the entire leadership uh defected to the camp of capitalism on mass the south african working class having built and sustained this organization these organizations the anc the trade unions, the South African Communist Party, for decades, the leadership of it all defected to the camp of capitalism and all chose to become very dedicated servants of finance capital. Tabo Mbeki, for instance, um, happily described himself as a Thatcherite. That's an indication of how far they went. And what happens when you have a working class which is which finds that all of the organizations that it worked to build and fight to uh, sustain for decades suddenly the entire leadership disappears into the enemy camp and the the the, the, the class is literally beheaded yeah its yeah. political leadership is cut off because it's all gone defected and this is why like the you get a lot of bitter class struggles in south africa but it's been it's a if you read into the reports uh, coming out of like marxist groups that do work there to try and move beyond the anc it's still very difficult to do because like there's a lot of distrust for political organizing in general because of the massive wound that was inflicted by the anc leadership on the south african working class by their defecting to being the dedicated servants of finance capital and it it's that level of defeat and disaster takes a long time to come back from I yeah. mean, yeah. you just look at the back over the history of like European nations when there's a massive, horrific defeat. It takes like a generation yeah. until things are rebuilt. Yeah, and of course now um, the the situation with regard to the economy has gotten considerably worse over time. This isn't like um, the. I mean, they were saying in the '90s and sort of early to mid 2000s that oh, look at how, what a great example South Africa is. Well, it was an example of where like the they managed to defuse a class struggle, and a lot of people, a few people, have made a lot of money. But now they're in a situation where like you have like record unemployment, and this is before the riots started. This is before the COVID lockdowns in South Africa, as we'll explore in a moment. You'd already had record unemployment. You'd already had years of stagnant economic growth. And the debt level in late 2019 was uh, around 60% of GDP. And like, so this was, this is a country which is, uh, its economy, its society has, is failing and has been failed by those leaders who were put into power in 1994. So the, the 1994 agreement might have indeed did, uh, do the necessary thing of abolishing a brutal and uh, reactionary system. But it, what it showed was that the liberal rights that it did grant, really, when it comes down to it, in a lot of cases, weren't worth the paper they were written on. Not when 
the people are still living in misery. The constitutional guarantee of housing didn't mean anything in the end. No, it, it, in fact, the, the Supreme Court has ruled that the government is failing to fulfill its constitutional duty, I think a few times at this point. It doesn't make a freaking difference. There's still massive, massive informal settlements in around the major cities in South Africa, Cape Town and Johannesburg, for instance. And it's really egregious because, um, you know, South Africa is made of nothing but land. Like there's, it's a huge, huge country. Um, but the government can't take it upon themselves to expropriate land to build social housing. Furthermore, uh, there is land being built up in Johannesburg and Cape Town, but it's sold off to private developers to build fancy condos for the rich, for the tiny minority of rich in South Africa, which now include a good handful of black bourgeoisie. So it's it's really it's a situation where the people fought for so long, their expectations were raised justifiably, and they were let down so badly. So I can um, it leads to a state of disorganization and dis and disarray, which um, you know will have like is currently having its repercussions now, but will have them for who knows how long. Um, really, really unfortunate and tragic. Um, and in any case. Um, so what is the current state of South Africa? I guess we could move on to. Yeah, let's talk about the... So this South Africa jumps back into the headlines in the uh, in the, the Western world, uh, or more specifically within the world that is sort of defined by the priorities of the American-British uh, block of, of state monopoly capitalism. Um, it jumps back into the news when there's some sort of like heinous event, basically. It's ignored most of the time. But it should be emphasized that the, the British and the Americans still have, particularly the British, still have a lot of interests in Southern Africa. Uh, British, uh, large-scale British firms still operate there and make a lot of money there. So whenever it makes the news, it's usually when something's happened to make the British bourgeoisie a little nervous. <laughs> so uh, these current riots in South Africa... Um, they were the official explanation was that they were started by uh, triggered by the imprisoning of the heinously and ludicrously corrupt former president, a guy called Jacob Zuma. Yeah, like a uh, clownishly on, corrupt. Yeah, <laughs> a, a hideously <laughs> hideous figure on so many in so many uh, ways. We'll explore who he is in a little bit. Um, but the the riots break out in the last couple of weeks and go sweep through um, a lot of the most economically important provinces and hit hardest a lot of uh, like poverty-stricken working-class areas. Um, so, for instance, they've been uh, mainly going on in like the KwaZulu-Natal area, um, cities like Johannesburg, Soweto, and they've actually done a lot of damage to... like. Um, uh, commercial centers, industrial centers. There's been a lot of looting. There's been a lot of burning stuff down, and it's been uh, a justification for Ramaphosa sticking the army on the streets, which mm. is never something that is a good sign when the bourgeoisie decides it's uh, it's time to crank out the guns. So um, he's ordered to at least two and a half thousand troops onto the streets. And bear in mind, um, you know, a lot of the old apartheid era laws are still in the books. That was another thing that survived. It's like when, if they want to reach into the uh, the apartheid regime's very dark bag of dirty tricks, they're all still there for them, and they inherited a lot of that repressive apparatus as well. 
So uh, it also should be emphasized that um, there's a lot of looting and chaos that's gone on inside the poorest communities. So you've actually started to see um, the working class people organizing sort of self-defense militias in their areas, because obviously the police aren't going to defend them. And there is credible reports of like roving gangs of like uh, organized crime elements, uh, lumpenized elements that are beholden to organized crime going around and making the situation worse and more chaotic. And like, of course, like looting and destruction, mm. even though like some daft asshole anarchists think that it's revolutionary, it really isn't because actually in a situation like this, it's actually very dangerous for the working class because it unleashes all the most reactionary elements will use it. Um, these riots are often infiltrated by various elements of the state repressive apparatus. So uh, provocateurs will frequently be involved, organized crime elements beholden to one faction of the bourgeoisie or another. It's actually a very dangerous time for the working class. So it's not a surprise that you see working class people organizing to actually defend their areas from like roving gangs of lumpens that are in the employ of somebody or another or roving gangs of like armed armed forces or cops, all of whom are incredibly dangerous for working class people. So it should be emphasized also that Ramaphosa has now ordered like the largest deployment of the South African army in the civilian population in the civilian areas since the end of apartheid. So this is none of this is good news for the South African working class. Yeah, it's a it's a major flare up in violence. And, um, you know, I, I think looting I, people get confused sometimes because there are some moments in working class history where there was rioting. But. Um, you really have to contextualize when that's happening, what is being attacked, what is being, you know, burnt down and stuff like that. Um, usually, though, looting and rioting does hurt the working class because it destroys something that they could instead expropriate and use towards their own good, right? That would be the better way of, that's the, the proletarian way of, 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 you know, changing the world, not by destruction. You know, it's, um, it, we will destroy some things, but most it's a it's a revolutionary outlook, right? So you're looking to not negate everything, but um, yeah, like t expropriate and put towards the proletariat's um, use. Um, and so, yeah, very understandably, um, some communities like in Soweto have self-organized to uh, defend, um, you know, malls in their neighborhood because they're like, well, this is where we get our stuff. This is where we work. And you saw very similar, a similar, similar reaction, actually. Uh, Michael Tracy, in, in a very good piece of journalism, went around uh, to different cities during the BLM riots. And you heard very similar, similar things from working people in the neighborhoods. They'd be like, you know, this is they're destroying a shop where where I can go. And like get my food, like now I have to go across town instead. I have to like go like a half hour, you know, an hour to get my groceries, right? And so um, when you see this kind of thing, like it, I think there definitely is a working class element to it. But um, you know, wanton destruction just and chaos is uh, is something that comes from either petty bourgeois radicals or the lumpen proletariat, which uh, often joins forces with them. Um, yeah, and so um. Ramaphosa too. I don't know if we've talked about how much of a piece of shit he is, but he's a huge piece of well, <laughs> there's two characters here who <laughs> are being who are equally awful who we should explore. <laughs> okay. Uh, the the first of whom is a former member of the South African Communist Party, Mr. Jacob Zuma, um, who um, oh, is a 
Guy actually comes from a, a very working class background. Yeah. He didn't receive any formal education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one point in his life was a very courageous revolutionary militant at some stage. He was a, a key organizer of the, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this, but Umkonto Visizve, the uh, underground ANC armed units. And he did 10 years on Robben Island. So clearly at one point he uh, was prepared to risk it, risk his own physical safety in pursuit of a higher goal. Now, much like everybody else in the ANC leadership, he spent the, the, much of the 90s and 2000s lining his own pockets. And ultimately he engages in a, uh, a factional rivalry with uh, Mandela's successor, this uh, self-proclaimed Thatcherite Tabo Mbeki, who became very unpopular due to his pursuit, his pursuit of like a very uh, pro-capitalist uh, policies all the way through his term. Zuma successfully positions himself in the 2000s as the more radical, more authentic alternative to Mbeki. And ultimately, he succeeds in having Mbeki basically deselected as president by the ANC and be basically... Um, removed from the possibility of running again and was told that his term was it was going to end like eight months after the vote basically so zuma successfully positioned himself as the guy who was going to be the more radical version he was going to be more true to the anc's traditions nothing could be further from the truth like um zuma under the cover of uh, of calling it saying he what was it, he calls it the scheme he was running the uh, economically radical economic transformation schemes that he was running, which was basically a clientelist um, series of corrupt deals that he was running via also his connection with the um, rich and very dubious uh, Gupta family in South Africa, uh, whereby he was lining his pockets and also running a series of corrupt networks that got to the point where they were actually hollowing out the state machine itself. And that got to be a problem for the South African bourgeoisie because even though they they liked Mbeki because he was this sort of bland technocrat who just uh, just spent his time attacking the South African working class. That's all he was interested in. Um, whereas Zuma was too much for them because he was doing all of that as well. I mean, he was carrying on all of the things that Mbeki was doing and doing them worse. But he was at the same time hollowing out the state lining his own pockets to the point where the state's machine starts to become compromised. And that's the point they throw him out uh, because it's getting too dangerous. At the same time, by the way, Zuma is the one who is responsible for not not solely him, but he's the one who really brings in um, a lot of xenophobic uh, rhetoric and political practice into South Africa as the economic situation gets worse. And of course, as he worsens it via his still following the, the diktats really of finance capital, um, he's at the same time trying to turn different bits of the South African working class against themselves. So playing up the tension between the Zulus and the other um, groups within the South African working class trying to organize like uh, whip up hatred against like Zimbabwean migrant workers um, and also then sort of in- embracing like some more sort of radical almost critical race theory like rhetoric when it came to like ah fuck the whites that kind of thing of course at the same time 
he's very much on the side of the white bourgeoisie. He's just using all this rhetoric to distract from like the enormous corruption that he's engaging in and the fact that he's still doing the bidding of the still largely white bourgeoisie. But he's whipping up all this stuff. He even gets to the point where like he's, I think now he's played with like uh, a new racial categorization system. So this is the this guy is like a monstrous piece of crap, and under his reign also, him and Ramaphosa's uh, destinies are intertwined because Ramaphosa, being a mine owner or having significant shareholdings in mining companies, uh, when a, a militant series of strikes broke out and in, uh, in what was the platinum mines in South Africa in 2012, Ramaphosa called very loudly for the deployment of armed force against the strikers. And Zuma, of course, was more than happy to go along with this and deployed armed police armed with machine guns and they killed uh, around 44 um, miners, striking miners. And there's, there's footage of this online. You can go and find it. It's called the Marikana Massacre, uh, where the South African police literally machine gunned 44 striking miners as then said, claimed it was in self-defense. Yeah. So that really reveals, like, just how hollow and rotten uh, the ANC was, literally machine-gunning striking workers. Yeah, by the by, um, Trevor Noah has a little comedy uh, segment making fun Oh yes, <laughs> of, the, of the fact that these strikers were mowed down by machine guns. It's very funny. Yeah, if he didn't think Noah. that he was an... If he didn't think that he was just a huge, unfunny piece of shit beforehand, go and watch that. I mean, literally, getting some chortles from, like, some bourgeois audience about machine-gunning poverty-stricken miners. Like, honestly, <laughs> like, I didn't, think you, I didn't think you could find a worse hack than, like, Jon Stewart, but they found one. Yeah, and then he comes out against police violence during the last BLM stuff. Like, oh god, yeah, <laughs> I'm against police violence unless I've got shares in the company that uh, uh, that the that the, them awful workers are striking against. In which case, shoot the bastards. Yeah, it's. I mean, just how hollow are these people? Seriously. Yeah, these these miners had the audacity to demand a one thousand dollar a month wage for mining. <laughs> The most, For mining the most difficult the most job in the, metal world. in the world. Yeah. How yeah. dare they? Anyways, uh, yeah, real Ramaphosa, another real piece of shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, there's a guy who leveraged his leadership of the, of the mining unions to become a mine owner. I mean, you yeah. don't get much more of like a hideous creature than that. He's a uh, but it should be emphasized. He's a he's a multiple billionaire. Yeah, yeah. He's made a lot of money off his uh, union and political connections. He's made a lot of money off really fucking over the South African working class. But the split between the two of them, of course, is not based on anything like principled. It's a clash over control of the party. And it's a clash really also that Ramaphosa yeah. is very much international finance capital's choice as the safe pair of hands. Because yeah. even though he's made he's made a ton of money... He's not engaged in the sort of outright criminal, openly criminal enterprises that Zuma was. So, yeah. like if you uh, um, if you read the opinions of international finance capital in their journals, like the FT and Economist, mm -hmm. they're very keen on Ramaphosa, aren't they? Yeah, they they love him personally. They're like Zuma, a little too corrupt, you know, a bit much. But they love Ramaphosa. <laughs> they're they're just like yeah. They're you know so laudatory. I was you know the FT for instance, uh, so laudatory to the uh, South African Supreme Court for standing for the rule of law 
and putting Zuma in jail. Which <laughs> <laughs> I bet yeah. they didn't say that when um, yeah. the Supreme Court found the uh, ANC had violated the Constitution over the housing promise. No, no, they didn't write anything about that, it seems. Uh, definitely not in those laudatory terms. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you always have to be suspicious when the bourgeoisie and especially bourgeois politicians um, are cheering on the imprisonment of another politician because they generally don't want to do that because it sets a bad precedent because they're all corrupt, like, crooks. <laughs> so they could be well, next. They, they- they just want to, they just want them to be corrupt in a dignified and hidden way. Yeah, but I think that the jailing of Zuma was seen as necessary by the bourgeoisie to consolidate the warring factions of the ANC. Um, Ramaphosa actually won uh, leadership over uh, the, he was con- contested actually by Zuma's one of Zuma's ex-wives who was loyal to him, um, and so I think it was the move they needed to do to just um, settle down the. Uh, the internal factional fights they were having, um, and so I think that's why they. I think that's why finance capital capital likes them so much. Like they just want they just want predictability. They want someone to you know broadly follow the rules or whatever, so that they can continue with their exploitation in peace. Um, yeah, they don't want somebody uh, basically turning the state into an open gangster state which is what the what zuma was doing i mean one of the things um, the the financial sorry to just jump in uh, one of the things the financial times was critical of zuma of is that he actually hollowed out the uh, security services as well and so they claim that's why the current bout of rioting has been hard to get under control because um zuma also depleted the police force which you can't have that <laughs> finance capital you can deplete no. everything else but the police not so much don't defund the police you gotta be able to sh- <laughs> Got to be able to shoot those workers so Trevor Noah can make a joke about it. Yeah, um, comedy for robber barons. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the question is, and the question arises, that is, was the rioting really about Zuma? Or no. was this about something else? So dumb. Like, I, when I was in South Africa, everyone hated Zuma. They were like, he's, he's, he's a corrupt piece of shit. He takes from public the public coffers to build mansions for his multiple wives and children. Um, no one liked him. I was very surprised to see that kind of analysis. I think there is um, some ethnic sections that are loyal to Zuma. Um, so some ethnic Zulu, uh, some sections of the Zulu ethnic group in South Africa might have some form of loyalty towards him. And so certainly I, I would think it's a plausible trigger um, if you start a bit of violence and, it, you know, that might incite um, a violence in other quarters. But um, I, I don't – that definitely isn't the reason the rioting has con- continued and also amplified. That doesn't make any sense at all. Like Zuma is, was not popular, is not popular to that degree. Um, so some Marxists have blamed the lockdowns. So the lockdowns in South Africa were relatively stringent. stringent. Um, they're undergoing the third lockdown right now or shortly before. It started before these riots happened. The third lockdown had started. Um and they're blaming the lockdowns not only on, uh, well, mainly because they feel that the lockdowns increased unemployment. But the truth is that in, in unemployment um, had been bad for a long, long time. So it's been at 30% before the pandemic struck. And now it's increased a little bit by 32%. So it's not like that extra 2% that really got people to just lose it. Um, the, the lockdowns are, I don't, I'm not finding that convincing at all. Lockdowns are fake. Um, into to in terms of their effect on economic 
um, activity to a very large degree. Um, as you can see from the very slight increase in unemployment, um, it didn't have a ginormous effect on, on unemployment in South Africa. Um, I think something that that should be taken into account is that the Treasury did um, was sending like a small monthly grant for the jobless that they stopped in April 2021. So it just came up to 350 Rand, which is $24 USD a month. But the, the fact of the matter is that there's been like a whole generation um, since the end of apartheid and life has gotten worse for people and um, people are just frustrated and exasperated. And so if there's a little bit of violence going on, it's easy to trigger uh, you know, aggressive emotions in other people. So I, I just think that's it. It's just a result of decades of maltreatment and uh, dashed hopes um, after um, and, and, and an inability of the government to, de to deliver what people not only deserve, but like basic, basic necessities like housing and infrastructure, you know, a, a huge segment of the population of the working population as well do not have access to these things in the modern era in one of the most industrialized countries in Africa, one of the most resource rich countries in Africa. In all respects, this country should be should have a very high standard of living, living for everyone. So I, I think yeah. that the frustration is extremely understandable, very, very understandable just yeah. on an economic basis alone. Yeah, and it really, I uh, want to emphasize this as well. It seems that it's a chronic and absolute failure of like the working class leadership or the union and uh, working class political leadership such as it is in South Africa has failed to reckon with the failure of the ANC, really. I mean, they, there's been a lot of talk about starting a new party to try and replace the ANC, but like, of course, the South African trade union leaders keep running away from that. They're not going to go anywhere near that. They don't want their, their deal with the ANC to be disrupted. Um, but I want to just talk a little bit about like um, how, first of all, how we should understand the uh, riots in the uh, within the context of like Lenin's critique of spontaneity, because I think this can shed some more light on like what's going on here and how to understand it. Yeah. And what does Lenin the, think about this? What well, would Lenin do? In, what would Lenin do? The uh, it's a WWLD question. <laughs> um, so. Riots, I mean, as you've said, and uh, th these are common things within the history of like working class struggle. Uh, some more idiotic elements on like in so-called Marxist groups and anarchist groups think that they are, you know, the high point of the revolution. Um, what is more often the case is that they represent like a chaotic and often um, uh, uncontrolled expressions of often quite legitimate rage uh, that gets expressed. Now, what generally happens, though, uh, is that when you get a situation like you've got in South Africa now, where you've got this uh, quite legitimate rage being expressed in various different ways, because there is there is no organizing principle there, there is no... Uh, there is no Communist Party worthy of the name to actually organize the masses to like mobilize in a way that's going to actually properly frighten the South African state. What you get is the struggle being diverted easily. This this up, up, uprising gets diverted easily into reactionary channels because it doesn't take, as I was saying, too much for like organized crime elements. 
um, elements of the security state to get in there and steer these things in a reactionary direction, steer them into turning against the working class itself. So keep it uh, turning rioting on working class communities. Mm -hmm. And really, riots have only formed part of a progressive trajectory of the struggle where there's been like a clear and coherent organized communist presence on the ground that can actually push towards ultimately like pushing toward from a riot to a mass strike to the point where you then have potentially developing a dual power situation um, or to the point where you organize some kind of like sustained protest where it's like not targeted it's it's away from the burning down and the destruction of working class communities and the energy that's been unleashed there is positively mobilized towards like mass mobilizations in areas that are going to concern and frighten the bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie don't really even care if like some if the working class uh, if working class areas get burnt down and brutalized as the bourgeoisie in the United States didn't care all the way last year when as you mentioned like uncontrolled riots ripped through a lot of uh, poorer and working class areas often started by out of town people often very heavily infiltrated by the state itself that was they were happy to use that mm -hmm. but when it comes to things like this the the abstract and faultless worshipping of like the so-called spontaneous struggle all it leads to is the working class becoming actually alienated from this yeah because all they see is destruction yeah and all they see is their own areas coming under attack from lumpenized and criminal elements and also then the state having a free hand to rampage around arresting people mm -hmm. killing people very true throwing people in prison without that or with Without that organization, mm -hmm. any tendency from the bourgeoisie or the lumpens can get hold of this and turn it into a nightmare. Yeah, and it, it you know, it has really, like, it causes the the working class to also fall into reaction a lot of the time because then they become sympathetic to the police, right? Because they're, yeah. they're seeing... Because they just want order to be retained yeah, or, very, or put back. Very reasonably, because everything that's being destroyed... That's stuff that they put their labor power into, right? They built everything that's getting destroyed right now. So um, it's very reasonable for them to have a negative reaction to that, especially if they don't see how this is building, this will improve their lives in any way. And they're very reasonably seeing this will make their lives worse. So it's, um, writing can have very negative consequences. I don't think it should just be like the way in which petty bourgeois radicals glorify it is, is so disconnected from the working class. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so bear bear that in mind when looking at things like this. You'll see a lot of like idiots from all sections of the petty bourgeois radicals screaming that this is a great thing. It really does like we're all like all aspects of this, of an unfolding struggle, like the organization and the leadership of the working class and the the mood of the working class is absolutely crucial to actually analyzing whether a tactic is positive or not. It can't be like this uh, ridiculous idealization. Um, but I'd also like to explore further, like into like the post ninety four South Africa, with, with um, re reference to um, the concept of Trotsky's concept of the permanent revolution when it comes to South Africa. How can this? 
help us understand what's been done here, particularly with regard to the, the 1994 deal to end apartheid and the subsequent sellouts here. So the what we were discussing earlier with regard to the uh, 1994 deal, um, we were describing how the uh, what was done was basically a uh, the end of the formal uh, legal systems of institutionalized discrimination. They were all ended, and uh, uh, liberal rights were granted to the uh, the population, voting rights, etc. And but all the economic elements of the Freedom Charter and that were wanted by the working class were dropped, and in fact the reverse was done. Now, why was this the case? Why did this? Why was it that like most of the leadership of the ANC, supported by trade union leaders and the South African Communist Party, walked straight into the enemy camp, shook hands and sat down on the other side with them? And I think some of it draws from the fear, a theoretical underpinning of the, uh, the, the South African Communist Party in particular, which would have been very affected by the kind of education that its leading militants would have gotten through the, the Moscow schools that used to be run for a lot of um, anti-colonial fighters back in the day, sometimes positively in terms of supporting anti-colonial struggles. But what it did do also was give them a very stagist view of the struggle. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that the the Moscow view in the throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s into the 80s of anti-colonial struggles was that you would get rid of the either direct colonial occupation or you would get rid of, in South Africa's case, uh, the white settler colonialist minority rule and that you would secure uh, the democratic reforms. And then at some point, when the forces were favorable, there would be a struggle for uh, working class power or socialism at some point in the future. Now, it wasn't just in South Africa that this fell down. This was also the point of view of the MPLA, who took power in Angola, it's also the point of view of those who forced the, after what should be said is a heroic struggle, forced the Portuguese out of Mozambique. Um, but all of them had this view that, well, we will do this stage first and we will secure the democratic reforms. And then at some point we'll push for uh, some kind of socialism later. It's also the point of view, by the way, of like uh, Mugabe in, in what became Zimbabwe. Now, the problem with this is, and particularly when we come to the case of South Africa. South Africa is already incorporated into the financial capitalist bloc dominated by um, Britain and the United States. Yeah. And what that means is your democratic struggle, the well, the struggle for democracy, is always going to be incomplete because... What did the democracy, what does the democracy actually bring the working class when the entire economic structure of the country remains unchanged? So from the point of view of analyzing this through the theory of the permanent revolution, what could have, what should have happened? What would be, what would have been a way of actually securing the democratic revolution, the democratic, uh, revol the democratic bourgeois democratic changes properly? in a way that would have meant something for the working class. And the only way to do that is for, rather than for the you know, the entire leadership to defect to the camp of capital, it would have taken the, the South African working class taking power 
to actually establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat in South Africa, to actually expropriate properly the old bourgeoisie and not just replace it or incorporate into it a new one. That would have been the only way of actually securing the democratic rights that were given in 1994. But then the point of view of the permanent revolution is that the then the the democratic rights are secured, but under the dictatorship of the proletariat, which can then go on to fight the fight for a socialist system. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is that the, the proletariat can secure that democratic revolution by taking power, and then it has to go on to fight for socialist change. And Trotsky says this specifically in the work called The Permanent Revolution, which is that in weaker uh, colonized and semi-colonial countries, it can be the case that the dictatorship of the proletariat can be established much earlier than it can in the advanced capitalist nations because the contradictions there are much greater. So given the fighting spirit of the South African working class, it is my view that it would have been eminently possible for a revolution to have taken place and for the South African working class to have potentially taken power in the 1990s. Not saying that would have been an easy struggle by any means. Of course it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But to argue that as I've... Uh, I've had this argument directly with Communist Party members from this country who are supportive of the ANC, who were even supporting the ANC under Zuma, where they were at, they came out and, um, this is an anecdote from, it must have been 2013. I was at a TUC Trades Council conference, uh, and it was just after the Marikana massacre and this clownish Communist Party of Britain member got up and it was in the international section so there was a resolution condemning Zuma and he got up and he said that this resolution is parroting CIA talking points um, because they want to destroy the uh, the tripartite rule of the ANC, the Kosatu and the South African Communist Party and all of this is lies, it's lies against Comrade Zuma, he called him Comrade Zuma this is a guy who built himself a garden the size of five football pitches, Comrade Zuma. Yeah, while his but, people literally guy, starve. Ugh, yeah. hate him. So this clown from the fucking Communist Party, I'm putting this in heavy inverted commas, is there arguing that, no, 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 you don't understand, you, uh, you, uh, you, you're echoing CIA talking points, they couldn't have gone for revolution in 94, um, blah, blah, blah. It had to be that they secure the democratic reforms, and you know they're they're just biding their time until they go for the go for expropriation of the bourgeoisie, and um, this was a serious argument that this idiot was making. But that was the that's the point of view ultimately of like the British Communist Party now, and most of the sort of remnant communist parties that exist in the West now, they mm. still hold true with this two stages point of view, even after the entire leadership has become incorporated into the South African bourgeoisie and he's literally gunning down the proletariat. They're not, and, they're not sending their best, the British well, Communist Party. <laughs> really not. It's never been their best. Um, but to the, to the argument that this revolution wasn't possible, I am not arguing for a moment that this would have been an easy task. But to say that the South African working class did not have the revolutionary potential to take power in 1994 or later, or immediately afterwards, to say that they couldn't have waged that struggle and wouldn't have waged that struggle is ridiculous. It is, that is a counter-revolutionary point of view. That is a opportunist point of view. And... The only way that I think that the the democratic reforms that were gotten could truly have been 
um, secured properly was for the South African working class to take power and establish the dictatorship of the proletariat in Southern Africa. And if they had have done that successfully, think of the revolutionary energy that would have been unleashed throughout Southern Africa. There's mm. huge poten- revolutionary potential in the working class across the African nations. But to say that they had to stick to this sort of bankrupt, ludicrous theory um, just shows like, well, we're, we're in the middle of this theoretical experiment right now. We're 27 years in. The South African working class is poorer, more desperate. The country's more economically fucked. Capitalism under the new bourgeoisie and the old has completely failed. So whatever you think, of this, or whatever you think that might have been valid back then, it has been disproven by history. Yeah, it's just like Trotsky said, like the lead up to the South African revolution, failed revolution, whatever, is, you know, when he says in his book uh, that you're you're getting this theory from, um, Results and Prospects, well, it was one of his books, I guess, um, he says that, you know, the chance for revolution doesn't come around all the time. And so when you get the chance, you really have to go for it because they're historically, they're not like moments that come all the time. Okay. And like the lead up to the South African revolution was a set of very specific historical circumstances. Like, so for instance, uh, the reason why the British and the French um, started um, letting their colonial possessions in Africa go was because they had been so beaten up by the Second World War and they didn't, they knew they couldn't put up with another military fight in their colonies in Africa. And so they just cut their losses in a lot of circumstances and, you know, very, very violent resistance in places like Algeria, very, very much encouraged that movement, right? So that, that kind of opportunity, that kind of, you know, all the way back to World War II with the existence of the Soviet Union, like all these different elements don't come in place and the strength of the South African proletariat and the, the level of organization they did achieve doesn't come uh, all the time. And so I, I do kind of agree with, Tro- uh, with Trotsky here. Like, um, they really should have gone for it. Um, and, you know, you're saying, yes, it would have been difficult. I agree. But the thing is, the proletariat in South Africa had been so deprived and for so long and had shown their willingness to make real sacrifices. And I, in a lot of ways, I think that the um, situation in South Africa uh, prior to the fall of Arpartheid um, in, in many ways was similar to the situation of the, Rus- the Russian proletariat and peasants, like their level of life was so low and bad and their level of enthusiasm was so high that they were willing to put in, you know, the work to build their society back uh, on a better basis. And um, we saw the gains that uh, the Soviet Union was able to make for its people, like massive gains on any objective measure. Um, and um, we'll, we'll look at what's happened here in South Africa, right? So it's not like... No one would say that the Soviet Union achieved even like socialism, right? It was a post-communist, uh, sorry, post-capitalist society. It didn't reach like full revolution, whatever, but it did achieve a ton. And so I really, yeah, I, it's, 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 it's one of the big tragedies, I think, the South African failed revolution to go for it and to take the chance that was the historically specific and exceptional chance that was offered to them because of, you know, weak leadership, essentially. Yeah, and uh, a fail, a failed theoretical formula, weak leadership, and also the um, the the fact is that a lot of the, these characters literally cashed in and literally, literally, like sold the working class out completely. 
And this is like the the devastating aftermath of that. It lasts a long time. You you don't get your revolutionary opportunities too often. And like when you do, you have to take them. Otherwise, this is what happens. And every single thing that the South African ruling class has done since has made the situation of the working class worse. So I hope that in the, the, the near future that the the political dominance of the ANC, the SACP, and the dominance of like the leaders of the, the Kosato Union Federation can finally be broken. Because it has to be. Because as long as those idiots remain in charge, you're going to keep getting like characters like Zuma and like Ramaphosa battling out in like uh, faction fights that really don't mean much to the working class because both of these guys are bad and also um just to address like the i mentioned earlier like the you get like creeps from uh, the bourgeois right in britain and america going ah we told you so we told you ending apartheid was bad and uh he, this has been like a thing on fox news and like uh, various other right-wing outlets and what they emphasize is the the fact that because zuma um, was uh, running a version of critical race theory as he's one of his, you know, ideological justifications and saying, that, ah, well, you see, you know, it, it doesn't work. This, uh, you know, whole multiracial society doesn't work. But of course, not only is, of course, as we've established, first of all, race is fake, but also Zuma and the others were only indulging in that sort of uh, attempt at a new form of uh, racial stratification because they led um, the South African working class down a blind alley and were trying to sustain their rule by um, building up a series of uh, xenophobic and prejudicial feelings within certain groups within the working class in order to keep the working class divided. That's the reason why these ridiculous theories have grown up and been promoted by the likes of Zuma. It's nothing to do with the fact that the um, the working class South Africans can't run their country. It's everything to do with the fact that capitalism can't run that country and has run that country into the ground. So if you're ever tempted to listen to the bourgeois rightists, bear in mind what the kind of system these guys would actually like to see back. I mean, they can't come out and say it anymore. But these guys basically get very nostalgic for the apartheid era. They like the idea of it. Yeah. As I say, they will, they will not say this directly. But this is nothing to do with, like, you know, the South Africans being unable to rule themselves. It's everything to do with the fact that South Africa is still under the control of finance capital, has a completely corrupted um, leadership, political leadership in the ANC and the, and the South African communists and others who have completely betrayed and sold out the working class. And it's everything to do with capitalist and finance, financial capitalism's decay. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, if you go to South Africa, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's how capitalism runs society to the ground one on one, one one, you know, <laughs> you have like, it's condos for the super rich in in the middle of a city surrounded by miles and miles of shanty towns how does that make sense it doesn't make sense so at the very least the proletariat were given power they would at the very least build housing in a rational way everyone needs housing so i think that would be an improvement um but of course like at least i i think the fall of apartheid isn't like an undisputable good because at least liberal rights, based on the notion that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and in rights, is actually true. Um, the idea that apartheid was based on, that people are, can, can be categorized in these things called races, and their rights are dependent on those things, 
is ridiculous. And it's good that we eschew it out of, out of human society. And so anyone saying, like suggesting that or saying that is, is it, they, you know, maybe they should get help. <laughs> maybe they should listen to our CRT episode. <laughs> yeah, They're not okay. Yeah. Critical race theory cuts the other way as well, whiteies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anywho's, um, well, uh, I, do you have anything else to say, Alex, about the South Africa? I mean, that yeah. brings us to a close. I mean, I, I would encourage everybody to um, read through uh, articles on this from some of the better Marxist organizations. We'll post the a uh, couple of articles that we uh, drew some of the details from here. Um, and also, like, do read, read if you haven't read uh, Lenin's Critique of Spontaneity and What Is To Be Done Yet, first of all, what are you doing? Seriously, there's nothing else you should be doing right now. Um, go and read that, because that's crucial to understanding how uh, class struggle plays out when there isn't an organized, uh, properly organized vanguard party there. And also uh, read up on the theory of the permanent revolution. You can find this very easily on the Marxist Internet Archive and see how this can be applied to the South African situation. And as always with these situations, whatever the fuck the bourgeois press is telling you probably isn't true. That's always a good rule of thumb, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. So until next time, uh, enjoy this, the weekend edition. Thanks to you, all of you out there for listening and supporting the show. And we will see you again very soon, barring imminent arrest. Don't make jokes about that. I, I might I might actually still get arrested. Unlikely, but uh <laughs> Well, if you get updated. arrested, I will go out. <laughs> I will go out and do crimes and get arrested in solidarity. Just, no, don't get just arrested. Because. Give me political asylum in Britain. That's what you should be doing. Okay. That would be a useful thing to do. Oh, Jesus. I better, <laughs> better speed up this revolution. That's a proletariat thing to do. Oh. <laughs> I need your solidarity, <laughs> not your rioting and destruction. <laughs> this is critique in motion right here. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, All I'll, right. I'll let people know if I am arrested. <laughs> Okay, uh, we may need a free Layla campaign. <laughs> yeah. Okay, take care. Uh, thanks, everybody. <laughs>